Good evening and a uh, very warm welcome to the Oxford Martin School. I'm Ian Golden, I'm the director of the school and it's a huge pleasure to be here to talk about our new book, Is the Planet Full? Uh, and to have with me colleagues who've contributed uh, to this. The question, uh, is the planet full, is not a new question. It's been one that's been addressed for at least the last 2,000 years. And you'll see in the beginning of the book some lovely quotes from the second century about how the planet was already too full. At that point, it was just over 100 million people. Um, it's been a subject which, of course, has come back to continuous discussion. You'll be familiar with the work of Malthus and others. Uh, and then in the 1950s and 60s really became the focus of a very big debate, uh, not least one amongst population scientists, uh, but also those that then began to be involved in sustainability. So some of you will be familiar with the Brundtland Commission, for example, and the Limits to Growth exercise, which was undertaken uh, by the Club of Rome. So this is an old debate, but what we've tried to do is provide fresh perspectives on it. Most of the debate has been an echo chamber within disciplines, demographers talking to demographers, food scientists speaking to food scientists, climate scientists speaking to climate sciences, and so forth. And what we've tried to do in the spirit of the Oxford Martin School is to provide interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary perspectives on this enormously important question. So the book brings together leading scholars from across the Oxford Martin School to approach this question from a series of perspectives and also to interact with each other. And you'll see references in the chapters uh, to uh, others. So we cover issues in addition to those being covered today, uh, which include, for example, health uh, and economics. That is not uh, what we're going to be focusing on today. Uh, I provide the introductory framework for the school and the concluding analysis, and I will come back to that at the end. So it's my huge pleasure today to be able to introduce uh, colleagues from the school who've contributed uh, chapters to this. The Oxford Martin School brings great minds together to work on the toughest challenges of the 21st century, and so this book seeks to draw on the leaders of different groups uh, and experts within the school. First, we'll have Sarah Harper uh, talking about the demographic dimensions. Sarah is the director of the Oxford Institute of Population Aging, one of the founding groups within the Oxford Martin School. She's on the Prime Minister's Council of Science and Technology, and she's the University Professor of Gerontology. She'll be followed by Charles Godfrey, who's the director of the Oxford Martin School's program on the future of food, the Hope Professor in the Department of Zoology at the university, and has been involved in many, many other initiatives in the UK and elsewhere on the future of food and farming, including in the UK government's focus on this. Yedvinde Mali, uh, who is the director of the Oxford Centre for Tropical Forests, another group within the Oxford Martin School, and the university's professor of eco-science in the School of Geography, uh, and is also a leader in the ecosystems at the Environmental Change Institute, will provide the next intervention, and he will be followed by Dr. Toby Ord, who is the James Martin Fellow within the Oxford Martin Programme on the Impacts of Future Technology, 
and the Future um, of Humanity Institute, and Toby is a philosopher. So four perspectives from them, and then I will provide uh, some perspectives. We'll have a little discussion on the panel and then open it up to you to engage with us. Sarah. Thank you very much. Um, so I read the chapter on demography and environment, and I think what Ian said was very pertinent because a lot of the ideas from that came from some work I did with the Royal Society uh, called People and the Planet, and that brought together demographers, economists, and environmental scientists, three very different perspectives, to say we live in a finite planet, and the way that the economists and the environmental scientists defined finite planet was very interesting. Um, what are we going to do to work together uh, to explore the evidence and possibly policy recommendations uh, out of that? And so my chapter very much tries to take a holistic view of population. Many people, when they think of demography, they think of population pressure and overpopulation. But what I wanted to do and have done in my other work is shift the debate away fundamentally from size, though I will talk about that in a minute, to more complex and subtle changes of the population across the 21st century. Uh, for example, population density. We're becoming much more urban. We currently have about half our population in urban centres. That will go to 75% by about 2050 and about 90% by the end of the century. And there's an increasing amount of work which looks at the interaction of urban populations with their environment uh, and the way uh, that that impacts, particularly on things like carbon footprints. Um, the distribution of our population, there's a lot of research uh, in this area, uh, and the way that uh, migrant populations in particular impact upon different types of ecosystems. But something that I was particularly interested in is the age compositional change of our population, that across the globe we're going uh, from predominantly younger to older populations. And there's a large amount of research now coming out which says that the changing age structure of a population can have differential impacts on the environment. For example, older people are seen to take less demands in terms of transport, uh, but maybe they have higher demands in terms of things like heating and cooling. And some of the modeling we did behind this chapter, however, pointed out that if we take age compositional change in relation to size, part of the forecast growth in our population isn't just around increased fertility rates, it's also around the fact that people are living longer so we currently have about 7 billion. We think we will go to about 10 billion, roughly by the middle of the century. But that extra 3 billion is going to come from two broad areas. One definitely will come from the increasing levels of childbearing, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. But an increasingly large percentage of that will come from the fact that people who once would have died in childhood and adulthood, they are living longer and longer lives. So the population pyramid goes from this shape into a more uh, square shape, and it's this group that are going to contribute uh, increasingly to uh, population growth. So thinking of populations in more subtle ways and also looking at how they interact uh, with uh, the environment. So taking some of the ideas from the chapter and the way that we have expanded it, uh, one of the things that came out very clearly uh, in the research that we did with the Royal Society was moving away from size into consumption. Uh, and at the end of that, People in the Planet report, something that we pick up uh, here in the book, uh, is the idea that we have to move away from population per se, but per capita consumption per population, and how that varies in different parts of the world. And one of the things that the Royal Society came out very strongly was to say that the peoples in the developed world have got to look at their material uh, consumption, 
in order to um, consider maybe we should cut back on this to allow those in emerging and developing economies to raise their standards uh, of living. And I explore that a little bit in the chapter. And just to give you some example of the kind of, of work behind this, uh, is modelling we've done, for example, looking at the total fertility rate in Africa, which is currently above four. And we've modelled different scenarios suggesting that if sub-Saharan Africa could bring its population down to replacement level uh, by the middle of the century, what impact would that have on food consumption, uh, which Charles is obviously going to talk about in a minute? And then what impact would that have on things like carbon emissions? So doing some more slightly sophisticated work around the relationship between population and consumption. But one of the things that has come out subsequently uh, from this is that the material that is in uh, the chapter has fed into the latest um, European Academy statement, and this is eight academies from across Europe, uh, demographers and economists who got together to make a demography statement for Europe. And I'll just read you one of the second recommendation uh, of that. And it says very clearly, European policies in terms of massive demographic change will need to find ways to reduce the material consumption in Europe while at the same time promoting high quality education, health and living conditions across the Union. And this will be presented to Brussels uh, in February. So very much the research that came out of the Royal Society is reflected in the chapter in the book. Uh, we're trying to have real policy impact around population and consumption. Thanks very much, uh, Sarah. Charles. I, I first became interested in the question, is the planet full, when I was a student, which I'm frightened to say was getting on to 35 years ago. And that was at the time of some of the initiatives that Ian mentioned at the beginning, the Brundtland Report, the Club of Rome, and a book in particular by uh, Paul Ehrlich, The Population Bomb. And it really did seem very gloomy there. It seemed that Malthus, the 18th century English vicar and economist was right, that it was almost inconceivable to imagine that population would have a soft landing, that what would happen in the end would be famine, pestilence or war. And the single most significant thing, astounding thing that's happened in my adult intellectual lifespan is what Sarah's just been talking about, the demographic transition, that we now know that under the right circumstances, human populations reduce their fertility. So now in my mid-50s, I'm more optimistic than when I was a student in my early 20s. And of course, one of the reasons we care about populations, we worry about populations, is whether the world will, will be able to produce enough food to feed however billion people there are. And the best pre projections at the moment, and there is considerable uncertainty around it, is that populations are going to peak somewhere around 10 billion people. Now, can the world produce enough food to feed 10 billion people? And of course, it's not the question of whether physically we can produce enough food. It's part of whether the food system can both produce, distribute, and people can afford to buy that amount of food. And there's been considerable effort in this area to try and answer that question, a variety of economic and econometric models. And they all produce sort of fairly different results. But if you look at what matters, what tells you whether there's going to be, um, whether the uh, answer is going to be positive or negative, it sort of boils down to three different things, two of which Sarah has touched upon. One is population growth, in particular, in sub-Saharan Africa. 
And I feel that all of us, individual citizens, certainly us as academics, and Sarah is a great exception on this, we don't talk enough about uh, population. And one of the reasons we don't talk enough about population is because 30 years ago when people talked about population, it was in terms of coercive population control. There is now such a more positive message that can be made about uh, population control. Provide access to reproductive health care, provide access to education, especially for girls. You get this virtuous cycle. The other thing is consumption, and again, consumption in the rich world. We enjoy a fabulous diet in a rich world. We eat a huge amount of, for example, meat. Meat takes a lot of resources to produce, many more resources than a vegetarian diet. It affects food security, it affects the environment, and it affects our health. Something we all can do, especially in a rich world, and that will make a large difference, is to uh, change our diets. And the single headline I would make on changing diets is to uh, restrict the amount of meat to eat. I could never give up meat. I could never become a vegetarian. But um, I certainly could, could deal, deal with uh, eating less meat than I do. And then the final thing that all the models suggest will be really important is we need to invest in agricultural research. We need to be able to produce more food on our existing agricultural footprint. The worst thing we could do is to bring more land into agriculture. The greenhouse gas, the biodiversity effects of that would be awful. And we've taken our eye off the ball for agricultural investment over the last 30 or 40 years, partly because certainly in the rich world, the problem has been overproduction rather than underproduction. We have to think about that, and it's not just yields. We need a continuing refocusing of research onto sustainable, producing food more efficiently than we do at the moment. So um, I'm largely an optimist. I think we can feed uh, a population of 10 billion people. But I suppose what worries me goes back to something that Sarah said. Increasingly, we see more and more of the world's population in cities. And in particular, these big mega cities in sub-Saharan Africa that are growing up, the Kinshasa's, the Nairobi's, the Dar es Salaam's. And these, the Cairo's, Cairo is 10 million people. It would be 20 million people within, uh, within 10 years, they reckon. And these big cities cannot be fed, at least at the moment, in the case of Cairo, probably forever, from the food produced within country. So we have to get the global governance of food right. We have to be able to have a global food system that produces grain and other commodities at a price that these big urban cities can afford. Because if, um, they, if they can't afford it, if the increasingly large fraction of the world's poorest that lives in cities, if they cannot afford it, then we'll see um, civil and economic disruption of a kind that we've not seen before, and certainly in the case of Cairo, right on the doorsteps of Europe. So on balance, I'm an optimist, but with some specific worries about certain aspects of global food security. Thanks very much, Charles. Yedvinda. Thank you, Ian. Uh, as both Charles and Sarah mentioned, uh, how much we fill the planet is a function both of how, much, how many we are and how much we consume and how much waste produce uh, we generate. And in my chapter, <coughs> I looked at how we can measure how, how full we are. And the concept I, I use uh, in that chapter is, is one 
uh, around metabolism, the amount of energy flowing, flowing through us. And all biological organisms have a metabolism, uh, but also in the field of uh, social ecology, there's this idea of an extended metabolism, that we have a metabolism that's more than our biological energy flow. It's all the energy that's associated with the products we have, uh, the embodied in the foodstuffs we consume. So I look at this, uh, and this metabolism matters not only because it's a measure of how much we consume, but how our ability to change the world around us. If our biological metabolism is much smaller than the natural metabolism of the biosphere, we tend to have a limited ability to change it. If it starts dominating, we can, we can transform the biosphere. We can build roads across the Amazon. We can uh, uh, fundamentally alter much of the functioning of the old system. So I look at this over human history. 10,000 years ago, we were all hunter-gatherers, and our extended metabolism was very similar to our biological metabolism, about two or 300 watts. Uh, as we transitioned into being farmers, the innovation that was key there was that we, instead of just half creaming off what the ecosystems would provide us, we actively colonized ecosystems and began to appropriate them for our own use. And they were our dominant source of energy supply, either directly as biofuel energy or for food, or for food energy. And by the start of the Industrial Revolution, our metabolism per person was around 2,000 watts. So that's the metabolism of a rhino, uh, typically, uh, per, per person. And then, but the problem with agriculture is it is fundamentally constrained by land area. The amount of energy we could have was limited by the amount of land that was available to us. And in some ways, there's a lot of evidence that we were almost in a Malthusian trap uh, since the fall of the Roman Empire, bouncing along boundaries and um, vulnerable to, to pressures because our energy supply was limited by the amount of land there any particular society or group could have. That was broken by the Industrial Revolution. Suddenly, uh, the access to this previously unavailable supply of energy, the fossil fuels of the deep biosphere, greatly increased our social metabolism. So now, most of us in this room have a social metabolism of around 8,000 watts. That's the metabolism of a 15-ton primate. Uh, so if you're in North America, if you live in North America, you're, it's a more like a 30-ton primate. Mm -hmm. So if you want a perspective on the UK, think of 65 million uh, King Kongs roaming the landscape, and you see how we can dominate and change the landscapes around us. And when we look at a global level, what this, uh, if we look at England as a whole, our uh, uh, the amount of energy flowing through us as a human population of England is about twice the metabolism flowing through the biosphere of England. And how is that managed? Partially because half our energy comes from fossil fuels and other sources that don't link to the biosphere, and partially because we outsource a lot of our metabolism. We get our resources and materials from other parts of the world. But when we get to a global level, we're more limited by that possibility to outsource. Currently, I estimate that we, our metabolism is around 20% of the global metabolism of the biosphere, which um, we can't reach 100% because we need to, the, the, the Earth system needs to function independently of, of, of us. But uh, under UNDP projections, by the middle of this century, we'd be approaching about 35% of the biosphere metabolism. If we all aspire that the whole entire world has the metabolism of a modern Chinese person, which everyone here has a greater metabolism, I'm sure, we, we hit about 40%. If we aspire to have the metabolism of a modern North American, we hit about 120% of the metabolism of the biosphere. So what's happening is that uh, we, we were, in, a, in some senses, in, in a full society defined by the technological constraints of the time, at the time of the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution moved us from a full world to a em temporarily empty world where we expanded hugely in our metabolism, but are now hitting new boundaries linked to the fundamental boundaries of the planet and 
how much resources we can extract from the planet and how much waste we can pump into the planet without having negative uh, feedbacks. So one of the challenges we face throughout history is this constant battle between boundaries and innovation. There, there are const we're constantly hitting boundaries and we're sometimes finding innovations out of those boundaries. The innovations can be technological, but they can also be in terms of governance and how we decide to organize ourselves, our cities and our societies, our transport systems and our energy systems. But what we have seen over the last century or so, this, this unprecedented growth in our metabolisms, is something that almost certainly can't continue indefinite, indefinitely. We're bound to hit boundaries, and we're hitting the first of those boundaries in the early 21st century. And one of the challenges we face is this transition from a temporarily expanding society to a society that can learn to deal with boundaries. Great. Thanks very much, Yurinda. Toby. Oh, thanks. Uh, so my chapter in this book, uh, as a philosopher uh, and someone doing moral philosophy, uh, is trying to look at the questions about um, how many people we should have uh, in the world, uh, what is good or bad about having additional people in the world, uh, how to weigh the benefits and costs uh, of additional people. Uh, so uh, this is something where a lot of people uh, just uh, we look at the negatives uh, and the, the costs that additional people have. Uh, for example, uh, if you have an extra person, uh, they produce environmental costs, um, using up energy, using up different parts of uh, uh, ecosystems and uh, requiring space uh, for themselves, but also space for their food production and so forth. Uh, so we look at things like this. Uh, but there are also benefits that pr people produce for other people, uh, fairly obviously. Uh, but there's generally a lack of actually trying to see whether those benefits outweigh the costs or not, um, and trying to actually weigh those things up. Uh, so that's what I looked at. Uh, the question of uh, what is the ideal population, uh, what would that even mean to know what the ideal population is? I don't think we can easily calculate it at the moment. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of things that we would need to know, as well as a whole lot of factual information. We also need to sort out some ethical questions about how to think about the value of people. Uh, so. Uh, I considered the idea that it's, it's possible that the ideal population uh, is su substantially lower than the current population, uh, or that it's somewhere near the current population. Um, I mean, if it was 7 billion, uh, then we would uh, have some problems because it looks like we're going to move to 10 billion, so the ideal would be very quickly uh, would be lower than the actual. Uh, but it's possible also that the ideal number of people could be higher than that. Uh, maybe it could be 11 billion, uh, in which case we would be underpopulated. Uh, now, my best guess is that that's not the case, uh, that uh, I think overpopulation is more likely than underpopulation, uh, but I don't think it's, it's obvious, and there's some interesting questions here. So one example uh, is that if we have an extra person, uh, they produce a lot of benefits for other people. Um, so one nice example of this is looking at what's called information goods in economics. Uh, so a classic example of something that's not an, econo an information good is a hammer or something. That's a physical good. Uh, if I produce a hammer in a factory, uh, then one individual will get to use that hammer. Um, now, if I'm instead a musician and I record a song, uh, then everyone in the world uh, could potentially get the benefit of being able to listen to that song. Uh, similarly, if I'm an author uh, or if I'm an academic or if I write software and put it up on uh, an app store or something like that, uh, then the more people there are in the world, the more people there are who would benefit from that thing that I produce, uh, because it's very easy to copy information, unlike copying physical goods. Uh, so this has a very different structure to it. Uh, in, and as I said, it, it scales with the number of people. Uh, so 
this is uh, quite interesting. So suppose we doubled uh, the world's population, or you could just imagine increasing by 10% or what have you. Uh, but if you double a population uh, and you look at the people producing information goods, uh, they'll produce twice as many information goods. Uh, so for example, uh, we would have on average, you know, with 7 billion people, uh, about twice as much uh, music, uh, different types of music, uh, as we would have if there were 3.5 billion people. Uh, so we have a lot more variety uh, in terms of music and a lot more diversity uh, from this. Uh, the same is true for literature uh, and for various uh, other forms of artistic uh, accomplishment, but also in terms of everything that academia produces is all information goods. Uh, another way to look at that is, is, is that if you doubled a population size, uh, people would only have to work half as long producing information goods to be able to produce the same amount of them. So we'd be able to cash that out at a lot of extra leisure if we wanted to. Um, so there are definitely some benefits for other people uh, that we produce uh, uh, when we add a person, uh, particularly, I think, these information goods. Uh, a second kind of uh, question is uh, to wonder about the intrinsic value of an extra person, the value for themselves. Um, so I think that uh, sometimes when we think about population, it's a slightly dehumanizing word, uh, and we want to make sure that we're thinking about the actual people involved. Uh, I'm certainly happy that I exist and that I got to have the life that I've led so far and will continue to lead. I think it's had a lot of uh, uh, joy in it and uh, think that that's been of value. Um, uh, there's a lot of talk, not on this panel, but uh, sometimes Cavalier talk about uh, whether we'd be better off having a billion fewer people uh, or something like that. Uh, but if you think about, say, all the people who ever lived in, on this island and the uh, associated islands nearby, uh, um, then the entire people who've ever lived there in the whole history of uh, humanity uh, comes to less than a billion people. Uh, and it seems to me that there's, you know, there was a lot actually, and even ignoring the effects they had on the other people in the world, uh, there was a lot of kind of value in the hopes and joys and dreams and aspirations of all of these people over this time. And we've got to be careful to think about this value to the people themselves, which we won't get if, you know, if we have fewer people. So how do we trade those things off, those benefits against the costs? Uh, I've mainly focused here on the benefits, but uh, many people talk about the costs as well, and there's these interesting questions about how to weigh them. Thanks. Thank you uh, very much, Toby. So in my chapters, um, I, I was trying to do a number of things. One is I was trying to place this analysis in a broader historical context by looking at what others have said about this problem. But I was also trying to think uh, about it in other ways. Uh, and the, the analysis, particularly in the first chapter, is about how do we think about density of population. So there are places like Singapore, for example, which have 7,000 people per square kilometer, and there are many parts of the world, like Australia, which on average have three people per square kilometer. Um, there are many parts of the world, like New York, uh, which consume the energy of the whole of sub-Saharan Africa, 20 million people, in the greater New York area consuming the same amount of energy as 800 million people in the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. So how does one think about this question? Uh, is it about the number of people? Is it about the energy? Is it about the resources? And as I indicated, in addition to my fellow panelists here, um, I was also lucky to be able to draw on uh, water specialists, resource specialists, and others across the school. And where that leads one to is a discussion, um, as has already been said by a number of my colleagues, about it's not so much about how many people there are, it's about what those people do, uh, and particularly what they consume uh, in terms of material goods, but also what they produce in terms of 
the benefits for others uh, and the costs. It's also a question, of course, as to how they governed. And one of the, the, the strong lessons of history uh, is that, for example, the things that we tend to associate with population pressures, like, say, famine, uh, when they looked into carefully uh, dissolve as population problems and become political problems or economic allocation problems, as Amartya Sen uh, in his book Poverty and Famines uh, so clearly illustrated. So even the Irish famine was not a population issue, it was a distributional question, uh, and so to have been all the famines. So it's about resources, it's about inequality, it's about access to power, it's about access to what there is. Uh, and the question becomes also about uh, the ability to move. Migration was always the way, historically, that people escaped local pressures. Uh, a third of Europe migrated, a third of Ireland certainly migrated, of Sweden, uh, and of many places at various periods in time. Uh, but as we build higher and higher walls around an increasing number of countries, uh, we no longer can think of the planet as being the unit of analysis for individuals, but of national entities, and people are trapped uh, where they are uh, increasingly. So that changes the way that we think about global population dynamics to having been a global picture uh, to being a different one. Now, there are many spillovers, uh, like the spillovers associated with, for example, climate change or antibiotic resistance, where it actually doesn't matter where you are uh, because you affect others elsewhere, but many other things like famines uh, are nationally constrained. So what economists call externalities. Uh, it's also the case that the market has tended to be the allocative mechanism for deciding resource allocation. So that's why a tuna got auctioned for a million pounds uh, in Tokyo uh, earlier this year because that is how the market responds to scarcity. So important question is also, how will we decide if there are scarce resources, who will get them? Will it be price uh, or will it be other mechanisms? And some things like the atmosphere and the oceans and land uh, sometimes have no price or cannot be priced, and that is true of water often. So inequality, power, politics, governance uh, in the end are going to determine this question as to whether the planet is full or not. A planet could be full with 5 billion people, uh, or it could be full with 12 billion people, or anywhere in between. But it's not about how many people there are, it's about how it's managed, uh, how they manage their lives, uh, their choices, but also the choices of their societies, and societies interacting with each other. Uh, clearly, carrying on, as business as usual, uh, is not an option. So that's where I came out, broadly speaking, without wanting to give away too many punchlines uh, in the concluding chapter. So that, that's enough from us in terms of each chapter. What I'm going to do now, I think because we um, only have about 20 few minutes left, um, let's go straight to a Q&A, because I see many of you that want to ask questions. This is being webcast and filmed, uh, webcast live, so if you don't want to be heard on the other side of the world or somewhere else, I suggest you don't ask a question. Um, who'd like to go first? Uh, yeah, the gentleman here with the... Uh, 
Very interesting talk. Um, my question is about the change from a pyramid, sort of a rectangle of in the, the population as far as the number of elderly people. Uh, my background is in healthcare. And I'm curious if you think a greater impact on the actual number of people will be from improving healthcare in countries where children are dying at very young ages or the result of prolonging life in very elderly people. And, and I, th I think that's a really interesting question. So, so, so what the question is saying is that we have different demographic drivers that are uh, around. We have those that are affecting the fertility rate or the childbearing rate and those that are affecting the mortality or the death rates. And the question was whether I thought that actually drivers around infant mortality had a bigger impact on populations going forward than those drivers which were basically uh, encouraging longevity because they were keeping frail older people alive. Um, and I think that one of the really interesting things, of course, is that why do women start to bring their childbearing down? Um, and I think as Charles uh, pointed out, we've become much more sophisticated in our understanding. And a lot of the work that, that we do here at Oxford, like many colleagues working in this area, it is about women choosing to have the number of children that they would like uh, and enabling them to have those choices. And we know that if you educate women, they tend to reduce the number of babies that are born because they understand that those children, babies will grow up to be children. And also infant mortality. Um, that if you reduce infant mortality, then they're likely to also cut back on their childbearing. So definitely, reducing infant mortality tends to reduce the total fertility rate of a community. Um, the other question, and I think you maybe slightly misunderstood what I was talking about, when, when we're talking about the population changing, we're saying that at the moment in advanced economies, we're almost a pyramid. That means that the majority of people born have long, healthy lives, and they die in their 80s, 90s, or even in 100, and it's much more this shape. The traditional pyramid, when you think about it, where you have babies down here and old people up here, all these people have died across the life course. They died as babies, they died as children, they died as adults. And what we're seeing happening is the, what we call the rectangulization of the life course. We're pushing death back. And it isn't that we're getting lots and lots of frail older people. It's just that particularly in emerging economies, people are not dying at 10, 15, 20, 25. They are living to reach 50 and 60 and 70 and beyond. Uh, and in a way, that is what is contributing to a part of the 3 billion that we're going to see. People are living longer than generations did in the past. So it's a combination of falling fertility and falling mortality at all ages across the life course that is in going to increase the population. And there's probably nothing we can do to stop us going from seven to 10 billion. It's what happens then at the end of the 21st century that I think is going to be crucial in terms of numbers, but there are obviously many other factors. Great. Gentlemen over here, then you. We'll, let's keep our questions short and our responses short Sorry. and we'll get through lots of people. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, uh, it's very, very um, seductive to share the uh, optimism of Professor Charles Godfrey. Uh, I think that uh, we um, see some facts in uh, the world. For instance, the fact that in the US, the farmers are forbidden to keep their own seeds and the extreme uh, pressure from the genetically modified crops community uh, make some traditional practices impossible or the fact that bees have to be transported from Florida to California to pollinate the crops um, somehow question you know the, the source of optimism in a way I would like to share the concerns of yeah. Professor uh, wait, can you just come to a question what are the policy implications of your research what are the 
actual practical suggestions because uh, issues of metabolism were discussed by ecological economists 20 years ago and uh, it would be interesting to see you know what is actually recommended you know at different levels you've got a wonderful big interdisciplinary team Can I Okay, um, the, the book is full of um, ideas regarding what we should do, but let's hear it quickly from the panel. Charles. So, very briefly on food, if you look at the challenges ahead, and as I said, I, I'm an optimist, I think that the logical thing is to make progress on all fronts simultaneously, on diets, on producing more food, and on improving governance. On producing more food, there are two ways we can do it. We can bring land into agriculture, we can increase the yield from current land. Bringing more land into agriculture is nuts for CO2 emissions for biodiversity. So food production must contribute by producing more. I see this as sustainable intensification. I don't think we have the luxury to throw away any particular set of tools, including GM, although I see GM is far from a silver bullet. I think we have to harness the the innovation of, for example, the agroecology and the organic movement, who've done wonderful things in making farming more sustainable and to make it more, um, more mainstream. So we need to use all the tools available and all the different options. I'd say there's a huge number of uh, policy implications, but just as one example, I think, is the shift to increasing recycling rather than this one-way transport from consumption to waste. And taking phosphorus as an example, we're running out of phosphorus, but if we shift from a system where we just throw it in our sewage systems out of the river and actually recycle it back to our food systems, we become, the world becomes a lot more available in phosphorus reserves. Thank you very much. I think you've made a lot of very interesting points indeed. I'd just like to question three things. One is this business about educating women, I think you've got to do a lot of educating of men who control women. <laughs> Quite frankly, a lot of women are controlled, and more and more are walking around now with their eyes only visible, and I think there's something serious got to be done about that. Um, the other ones, uh, the other important thing to me is, is the planet full? You've only talked about human beings. There are actually other creatures on this planet and I was very shocked to hear about this colonizing of ecosystems and roads across the Amazon. I mean, not only are there um, animals that we actually need and creatures that we actually need to survive ourselves, but there are indigenous peoples living here who, you know, innovation is not so wonderful for them. So I don't know what you want to say about that. And um, I'm just trying to think what the third one was now. But, um, I think it was about, yes, um, the reduction. Oh, yes, c people cutting back. I mean, have you any idea how you're going to persuade the average person that, no, they don't need that new fast car, they actually need a smaller car. No, they don't need this, that, and the other. I think you'll have great difficulty in persuading that. I don't know how you think you're going to okay. do it. Thanks very much for uh, three very pertinent questions. Um, I think what we'll do, if you could just take notes on the questions, I'm going to collect a few uh, because there are lots of hands up and then we'll come back to the panel. The gentleman over here? Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Um, that was a very interesting discussion. I was just wondering uh, if you have, uh, you mentioned briefly, uh, thought about disruptive technology. So uh, I, I'm just going to bring just one quick example. 1850, 30% child mortality. Uh, uh, vaccines we already know exist by that time, but not really thought about 
in public health, how it would impact. About 50 years later, 30% of that mortality, I mean almost all of that childhood mortality is wiped out with one disruptive technology. So Sarah, um, regenerative medicine, not only keeping people alive longer, but uh, in, in ex excellent health. So they don't ever have to leave the workforce if they don't want to. Uh, you have in their, uh, regen I mean, uh, renewable technologies that you were talking about. Um, vertical farming and um, lab-grown meat uh, in the context of food. Are you all looking at uh, these disruptive technologies and how that would actually change the game plan completely? Okay. The, did you want to pose a question? Yeah. Um, I think it's somewhat related to what the lady here said, but um, my question is just for Dr. Ord on just considering when you're considering the marginal benefits and costs of adding additional people, I mean, to what degree do we have to consider or at all um, intrinsic values of either other types of life or biodiversity or the sustenance of the planet itself? Okay. Um, we'll gradually work our way back and hopefully we'll get to the back. The gentleman over here who is... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Surely the most important thing is the quality of consciousness. And it's not healthy mental condition pointed out by Lord Lair lately and healthy physical development beginning with the kind of thinking of the McCarrison Society and so on, even to the prenatal stage, the production of good people or giving people the best chance of becoming good will then, will then that reduce the God that's being made of competitiveness and enable us to live in a more loving and more inclusive manner. Thank you. Um, okay, let the woman over here. Hello. Uh, so we've heard a lot about uh, is the planet full and, and can we uh, sustain a bigger population. I, I wanted to ask a different question. I mean, it is quite obvious if we're asking the question already, can we, can we produce more food? How can we produce more food? That we are imposing uh, quite a lot of stress on the planet right now. And I want to ask, do we want more people on this planet? Um, and I want to bring um, related issue is this. Um, so it's already quite obvious that there is going to be three billion more people because of this uh, pyramid versus rectangle population. Um, but is there, is there any way that we could curb the population later on? And obviously it's a very contentious and sensitive political issue um, and how could we okay. address that? Thank you very much. The gentleman over here. Um, what changes um, do, you, do you think we need in terms of governance? And in particular, um, is the nation state dead? Okay. Um, right, I think we've got a, f a set of few. Let's answer quickly, but we don't have to answer all the questions. We will be having a drink afterwards and signing copies of the book. So if we don't get to your question, you can come and chat to us individually afterwards um, because there are still lots of hands up. All right, let's just. Very briefly, 
the nation state isn't dead and one of the problems is it's alive and kicking and makes <laughs> agreements about food governance very difficult. I like very much your question on disruptive technologies. Let me bring two together. I, I think that within 20 or 30 years we will have artificial meat that in blind tasting we won't be able to tell apart. I think it will come through regenerative medicine actually where all the activity is being. I don't think it's the science, I think it's whether we as consumers have a yuck feeling for it. I think the issue about consumption is really interesting. Um, at the moment we do not in civil society have a sufficiently sophisticated discussion about the need to reduce consumption. I think it's a bit like cigarettes. We've known cigarettes kill, have killed us for 50 years and it's only in the last 10 years we've legitimized our governments to take really hard decisions. I think we need to go through that trajectory on some of the issues of consumption. Yeah, uh, so I, I agree on uh, consumption. I, I was going to mention this in response to your question uh, that uh, I think we do need uh, people to, to be better, uh, ways of making us actually work better together and, uh, and have a uh, less impact on uh, uh, our environment and, and so forth. Uh, one good example, as, uh, as Charles mentioned earlier, is uh, decreasing meat consumption. Uh, and I think that as the population increases, we're going to need to do things like that um, uh, much more. Um, uh, and similarly, we could reduce water consumption and a whole lot of things like this. Uh, there, there are definitely ways to do this. Um, uh, and you know, similarly, we can uh, uh, spend more of our money on uh, clean energy rather than uh, polluting energy and so forth. That's why I think that when I was trying to cast things as a question about uh, what's the ideal population and saying there's costs, I was thinking about costs and benefits rather than limits, um, because often these limits, uh, uh, it's more there's a question about what would, how much could we do if everyone is living it with kind of American lifestyles is one question, but another approach is let's not live with American lifestyles, uh, let's change consumption. So I think that a lot of the things about overpopulation are potentially actually about overconsumption and, uh, and it's kind of I mean, it's true that if you have a whole lot of people consuming it, the you standard. Need to speed up. Yeah, uh, that's that's right. Also, I think animals are completely important, uh, and I definitely <laughs> factor them in. Okay, um, Sarah. Um, yes, I'm just going to answer the the question on regenerative medicine because, in fact, although that may be important, uh, just the normal pushing back of um, longevity is actually what's going to do it. Just with the normal pushing back of longevity, half of the um, babies that are being born at the moment are likely to make it to 104, 105, 106. 127 million people in Europe will make it to a century. And that's just normal. We are going to have longer lives and that will have an impact uh, on um, obviously the population numbers. Um, I just wanted uh, to come back to the, the, the debate about consumption because it does seem to me that food is one area where this is going to crystallise. Mm -hmm. We have people in this world who are sick because of overconsumption of calories. We call it obesity, it leads to chronic disease. And we have people on this planet who are sick because of underconsumption of calories. It's called malnutrition. It seems to me the food debate is, is where I think a lot of our ideas around consumption are going to consolidate. And finally, um, Several people have mentioned things like health uh, and education, and I think it's, it's very clear that, if you like, health and education are actually going to come together around a really important thing, which is inequalities, because if we are going to have technological fixes, we're going to have huge inequalities in, in this planet of those people who can benefit from them and those people who can't. So inequality, consumption, and population is probably the way we should be framing a lot of this. Linda. Thank you. Uh, a couple of uh, 
uh, question is asked about um, the biodiversity and the rest of the species on the planet. And uh, certainly, you know, as ecologist, a key part of my argument is that we need to not approach that 100% because we need to leave uh, living space for the other fellow denizens of the biosphere that have evolved over millions of years. And so what I was doing in describing this transformation of our metabolism was not necessarily advocating all aspects of it, but analyzing what has happened uh, in, 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 throughout human history and how we have begun to transform it. And uh, uh, the other just point I'll pick up on is on, on the nation state. And I think one of the challenges that we face is that many of our problems have become global, uh, whether it's resource consumption or climate change, and yet our governance structures uh, are still at that nation state level where they're, where they're functional. And one of the ways, things we have to do is work out how we can transition to f re relatively fair uh, global, uh, global governance schemes. Great. Now, we haven't been able to do full justice to the questions, but we do want to get one more quick round in. Uh, so, a hand that shot up over there. better quality of uh, diet with rationing, individual rationing cards. Uh, what would the panel think, I beg your pardon, to such an idea? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, a clear question. Uh, yeah, the guy's got the mic. <laughs> uh, yeah, hi. Um, yeah, it was very, very interesting, um, the whole discussion. Um, going back to consumerism, there's something that I feel that we haven't um, talked about, and for me it's quite, quite pertinent, and that's that... Um, I feel that the majority of the less developed nations um, aspire and dream of consuming what the developed nations do. And I think that if we don't address that problem, um, the, the, the trend looking, looking forwards is just for us to, to just consume more and more and more. Um, okay. And I can't see it um, a solution if, if, if that's not addressed. Yeah. All right. Time for one more quick question to your... <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll be quick answers. And Cheers. What are your thoughts on the effects of climate change on the population size? Yep. Thanks. Okay. Uh, let's uh, start at the other end and go quickly through the panel, and then I'll make some concluding comments. Uh, okay, i just take that one on, on consumerism. I think uh, certainly there's, there's aspects in there for behavioral change, but there's a lot of challenges in behavioral change, as you recognize, and Having worked a lot of my life in tropical countries, I see the genuine needs and aspirations of people to live better than many people in the developing world do currently, and they're quite legitimate needs. And I think part of the transformation is not necessarily just in how much we consume, but where our consumption comes from, how much it is direct one-way pillaging of resources, and how much is part of a more circular economy where, where resources are used and reused over time. So I think refashioning the way we think of consuming the planet's resources, while less, not necessarily greatly reducing our individual per capita consumption, may be a way forward that can meet those, meet those multiple goals. Sarah. Yes, um, on, on consumption, and going back to the thing, this is exactly what the Royal Society was trying to tackle, that not only in the emerging economies, but in the least developed world, they have to increase their material consumption. 
uh, in order basically to bring their standards of living up to what is probably an acceptable standard of living. And they argued, and that's what the European Academy report is all about, is that Europe and the US and other similarly advanced economies, we have to reduce our material consumption in order to compensate. Uh, and in terms of... Um, uh, climate change and population, I think there's a lot of evidence that in local areas, climate change has a devastating impact on populations and population growth. But at the bigger global perspective, it probably, at the moment, uh, has less of uh, an impact, particularly in reducing uh, uh, population numbers. Yep. Yep, uh, uh, so I, I agree with these comments. I want to stress this idea about different types of consumption, perhaps rather than just amount of consumption. If you're measuring it as economists do, uh, it costs more uh, to consume uh, renewable energy uh, because it costs more in terms of dollars and therefore it's more consumption. However, it's less of a drain on the planet. Uh, so we need to have kind of smarter forms of consumption. Uh, people in these poor countries can be consuming better medicines and so on uh, without that being a big uh, toll on the planet. It's absolutely true that we were healthier when we had rationing. But let's be realistic. Rationing is never going to happen unless we want it to happen. So it's a question about how do we, as civil society, how do we discuss these issues and whether we legitimise our politicians to do something. I don't think rationing will, will happen, but there are other things that politicians could do if we allow them to do. That would be really helpful for these discussions. Great. Well, you've got um, a sense of, <laughs> of the complexity and breadth and depth which we deal with uh, in, in the book, and you've only got... Uh, five out of nine of the authors here. So uh, we, we do tackle many of these issues. Um, I'm afraid we haven't had time to go into any depth. Uh, I've, of course, written a lot about the governance and nation-state questions. Uh, others have written, and we have work in the, um, the book on climate change. Clearly, more people uh, producing 20 tons per capita uh, of carbon is going to burn the planet. Uh, so finding a way in which the rest of the world can climb the energy curve without uh, destroying the world, amongst other aspects of it, is absolutely central to it. And also dealing with this question, which we haven't uh, fully addressed uh, on the panel, as whether population should be curbed. Uh, we don't want any of you not to be on the planet, uh, and we don't want our children or grandchildren not to be on the planet. Is there someone else that we don't want to be on? Um, and. Um, that, that's the sort of issue that we grapple with amongst others and also, of course, whether the population indeed uh, will keep rising. So I hope we've tantalized you enough uh, to read more, uh, if not in the book, uh, part of this debate and engage in it because we do feel uh, in the Oxford Martin School that this is absolutely vital uh, to thinking about the challenges of the future. If you found this interesting, you may well find other things going on in the school interesting as well. Uh, we have our continuing Thursday afternoon at 3.30 seminar series. The focus this term is on health in the 21st century, what's new. Uh, we, this coming Thursday, have a discussion on eradicating HIV and hepatitis. Uh, the following week will be on drug discovery and finally on vaccines, including people that are very close to the discussions on Ebola. And the other event we have is on ethics of finance, uh, which is David Vines on Wednesday at 5 p.m. Uh, and we'll soon be announcing our next seminar series, which indeed will likely to be on climate change. 
So uh, a lot happening. You're all invited to join us for a drink, and we'll be doing a book signing sort of around the corner here uh, immediately after this. Thanks to you all for coming. Thank you.